0: the passing of Ambrose. Right ho, said Algy Crufts, then I shall go alone. Right ho, said Ambrose Whiffin. go alone. Right ho, said Algy Crufts, I will. Right ho, said Ambrose Whiffin. do. Right ho then, said Algy Crufts. Right ho, said Al- Ambrose Whiffin. Right ho, said Algy Crofts. Few things, said Mr. Mulliner, are more painful than an altercation between two boyhood friends. Nevertheless, when these occur, the conscientious narrator must record them. <laughs> it is also no doubt the duty of such a narrator to be impartial in the present instance. However, it would be impossible to avoid bias to realize that Algy Crofts was perfectly justified in taking an even stronger tone. One has only to learn the facts. It was the season of the year when there comes upon all right-thinking young men the urge to go off to Monte Carlo. <laughs> And the plan had been that he and Ambrose should catch the 10 o'clock boat train on the morning of the 16th of February. All the arrangements had been made, the tickets bought, the trunks packed, the 100 systems of winning at roulette studied from end to end. And here was Ambrose on the afternoon of February the 14th, calmly saying that he proposed to remain in London for another fortnight. Algie Crufts eyed him narrowly. Ambrose Whiffen was always a nattily dressed young man but today there had crept into his outer crust a sort of sinister effulgence, <laughs> which could have but one meaning. It shouted from his white carnation, it shrieked from his trouser. <laughs> it shrieked from his trouser crease. And Algy read it in a flash. You're messing about after some beastly female, he said. Ambrose Whiffin reddened and brushed his top hat the wrong way. And I know who it is. It's that Wickham girl. Ambrose reddened again and brushed his top hat once more, this time the right way, restoring the status quo. Well, he said you introduced me to her. I know I did, and if you recollect, I drew you aside immediately afterwards and warned you to watch your step. If you have anything to say against Miss Wickham, I haven't anything to say against her. She was one of, she's one of my best pals. I've known young Bobby Wickham since she was a kid in arms, and I'm what you might call immune where she's concerned. But you can take it from me that every other fellow who comes in contact with Bobby finds himself sooner or later up to the Adam's apple in some ghastly mess. She lets them down with a dull, sickening thud. Look at Roland Atwater. He went to stay at her place, and he had a snake with him. Why? Oh, I don't know. He just happened to have a snake with him. Then <laughs> Bobby put it in a fellow's bed and let everyone think it was Atwater who had done it. He had to leave by the milk train at three in the morning. <laughs> Atwater had no business lugging snakes about him to country houses, said Ambrose primly. One can readily understand how a high-spirited girl would feel tempted. And then there was Dudley Finch. She asked him down for the night and forgot to tell her mother he was coming, with the result that he was taken for a society burglar and got shot in the leg by the butler <laughs> as he was leaving to catch the milk train. <laughs> a look such as Sir Galahad might have worn on hearing gossip about Queen Guinevere lent a noble dignity to Ambrose Whiffin's pink young face. I don't care, he said stoutly She's the sweetest girl on earth I'm taking her to the dog show on Saturday (laughs) Eh? What about our Monte Carlo binge? That'll have to be postponed Not for long, she's up in London Staying with an aunt of sorts For another couple of weeks I could come after that Do you mean to say you have the immortal crust To expect me to hang about for two weeks Waiting for you? I don't see why not Oh, don't you? Well, I'm jolly well not going to "'Right-ho, just as you like. Right-ho, then I shall go on alone. Right-ho, go alone. Right-ho, I will. Right-ho, do. Right-ho, then. Right-ho,' said Ambrose Whiffin. Right-ho, said Algie cross <laughs> At almost exactly the moment when this very distressing scene was taking place at the Drones Club in Dover Street, Roberta Wickham, in the drawing room of her Aunt Marcia's house in Eaton Square, was endeavoring to reason with her mother and finding the going a bit heavy. Lady Wickham was notoriously a difficult person to reason with. She was a woman who knew her mind. But, Mother! Lady Wickham advanced her forceful chin another inch. It's no use arguing, Roberta. But, Mother, I keep telling you, Jane Falconer has just rung up and wants me to go around and help her choose the cushions for her new flat. And I keep telling you that a promise is a promise. You voluntarily offered after breakfast this morning to take your cousin Wilfred and his little friend Esmond Bates to the moving pictures today, and you cannot disappoint them now. But if Jane's left to herself, she'll choose the most awful things. I cannot help that. She's relying on me. She said so, and I swore I'd go. I cannot help that. I'd forgotten all about Wilfred. Wilfred i cannot help that you should not have forgotten you must ring your friend up and tell her that you are unable to see her this afternoon i think you ought to be glad of the chance of giving pleasure to these two boys one ought not always to be thinking of oneself one ought to try to bring a little sunshine into the lives of others i will go and tell Wilfrid you are waiting for him left alone roberta wandered morosely to the window and stood looking down into the square From this vantage point, she was able to observe a small boy in an Eton suit, sedulously hopping from the pavement to the bottom step of the house and back again. This was Esmond Bates, next door's son and heir. And the effect the sight of him had on Bobby was to drive her from the window and send her slumping onto the sofa, where for a space she sat gazing before her and disliking life. It may not seem to everybody the summit of human pleasure, to go about London choosing cushions. But Bobby had set her heart on it, and the iron was entering deeply into her soul when, the soul when the door opened and the butler appeared. Mr. Whiffin announced the butler. And Ambrose walked in glowing with that holy, reverential emotion which always surged over him at the sight of Bobby. Usually there was blended with this a certain diffidence unavoidable in one visiting the shrine of a goddess. Today the girl seemed so unaffectedly glad to see him that diffidence vanished. He was amazed to note how glad she was to see him. She had bounded from the sofa on his entry and now was looking at him with shining eyes like a shipwrecked mariner who sights a sail.
1: Oh, Ambrose, said Bobby, I'm so glad you've come.
0: Ambrose thrilled from his quiet but effective sock clocks to his stay combed hair. How wise he felt he had been to spend that long hour perfecting the minutest details of his toilet. As a glance in the mirror on the landing had just assured him, his hat was right, his coat was right, his trousers were right, his shoes were right, his buttonhole was right, and his tie was right. He was 100%, and girls appreciate such things. "'Just thought I'd look in,' he said, speaking in the guttural tones which agitated vocal cords always forced upon him when addressing the queen of her species. (laughs) "'And see if you were doing anything this afternoon. "'If,' he added, "'you you, you see what I mean. "'I'm taking my cousin Wilfred and a little friend of his to the movies. "'Would you like to come?' "'I say. Oh, thanks awfully. May I?' "'Yes, do.' (laughs) "'I say, thanks awfully,' "'gazed at her with worshipping admiration. "'But I say, "'how frightfully kind of you "'to mess up an afternoon "'taking a couple of kids to the movies.
1: "'Awfully kind. "'I mean, kind.
2: "'I
1: mean, I call it dashed. "'Kind of you.' (laughs) "'Oh,
0: well,' said Bobby modestly, "'I feel I ought to be glad "'of the chance of giving pleasure "'to these two boys. "'One ought not always "'to be thinking of oneself.' Well, not to try to bring a little sunshine into the lives of others. You're an angel. Oh, no, no. An absolute angel, insisted Ambrose, quivering fervently. <laughs> Doing a thing like this is, well, oh, absolutely angelic, if you follow me. I wish Algie Crofts had been here to see it. Why Algy? Because he was saying some very unpleasant things about you this afternoon. Uh, most unpleasant things. What did he say? He said, Ambrose winced, the vile words were choking him. He said, you let people down. Did he? Did he, forsooth? I'll have to have a word with young Algernon P. Crufts. He's getting above himself. He seems to forget, said Bobby, a dreamy look coming into her beautiful eyes, that we live next to each other in the country and that I know which his room is. What young Algy wants is a frog in his bed. Two frogs, amended Ambrose. Two frogs, agreed Bobby. The door opened, and there appeared on the, ma- on the mat a small boy. He wore an Eton suit, spectacles, and low down over his prominent ears, a bowler hat. And Ambrose thought he had seldom seen anything fouler. He would have looked askance at royalty itself had royalty interrupted a tete-a-tete with Miss Wickham. I'm ready, said the boy. <laughs> this is Aunt Marcia's son, Wilfred, said Bobby. Oh, said Ambrose coldly. Like so many young men, Ambrose Whiffin was accustomed to regard small boys with a slightly jaundiced eye. It was his simple creed that they wanted their heads smacked.
2: <laughs>
0: when not having their heads smacked, they should be out of the picture altogether. He stared disparagingly at this specimen. The half-formed resolve to love him for Bobby's sake perished at birth. (laughs) (laughs) Only the thought that Bobby would be of the company enabled him to endure the prospect of being seen in public with this outstanding piece of cheese. (laughs) (laughs) Let's go, said the boy. All right, said Bobby, I'm ready. (laughs) We'll find old Stinker on the steps, the boy assured her. "'as one promising a deserving person some delightful treat. "'Old Stinker, discovered as predicted, "'seemed to Ambrose just the sort of boy "'who would be a friend of Bobby's cousin, Wilfred. "'He was goggle-eyed and freckled, "'and also, as it was speedily to appear, "'an officious little devil "'who needed six of the best with a fives bat. (laughs) "'The cab's waiting,' said Old Stinker. "'How clever of you to have found a cab, Esmond,' "'said Bobby indulgently.' I didn't find it, it's his cabs so I told it to wait a stifled exclamation escaped Ambrose
2: <laughs>
0: and he shot a fevered glance at the taxi's clock <laughs> the sight of the figures on it caused him a sharp pang <laughs> not six with a fives bat. he felt ten <laughs> and of the juiciest <laughs> splendid said Bobby hop in, tell him to drive to the Tivoli Ambrose suppressed the words he had been about to utter and, climbing into the cab, settled himself down and devoted his attention to trying to avoid the feet of Bobby's cousin, Wilfrid, who sat opposite him. The boy seemed as liberally equipped with these as a centipede. And there was scarcely a moment when his boots were not rubbing the polish off Ambrose's glittering shoes with something of the emotions of the 10,000 Greeks on beholding the sea, that at long last he sighted the familiar architecture of the Strand. (laughs) Soon he would be sitting next to Bobby in a dimly lighted auditorium, and a man with that in prospect could afford to rough it a bit on the journey. He alighted from the cab and plunged into the queue before the box office. Wedged in among the crowd of pleasure seekers, Ambrose, though physically uncomfortable, felt somehow a sort of spiritual refreshment. There is nothing a young man in love finds more delightful than the doing of some nightly service for the loved one. And though to describe as a nightly service the act of standing in a queue and buying tickets for a motion picture entertainment may seem to be straining the facts a little. To one in Ambrose's condition, a service is a service. He would have preferred to be called upon to save Bobby's life. But this not being at the moment feasible, it was something to be jostling in a queue for her sake. Nor was the action so free from peril as might appear at first sight. Sheer black disaster was lying in wait for Ambrose Wiffin. He had just forced his way to the pay box and was turning to leave after buying the tickets when the thing happened. From somewhere behind him, an arm shot out. There was an instant sickening suspense and then the top hat, which he loved nearly as much as life itself, was rolling across the lobby with a stout man in the uniform of a Czechoslovakian rear admiral in pursuit. (laughs) In the sharp agony of this happening, it had seemed to Ambrose that he had experienced the worst moment of his career. (coughs) Then he discovered that it was in reality merely the worst but one. The sorrow's crown of sorrow was achieved an instant later, when the Admiral returned, bearing in his hand a battered something which, for a space, he was unable to recognize. The Admiral was sympathetic. There was a bluff, sailorly sympathy in his voice as he spoke. Here you are, sir, he said. Here's your rat. A little the worse for wear, this rat is, I'm afraid, sir. A gentleman happened to step on it. You can't step on a gnat, he said, sententiously. <laughs> not without hurting it. That tat is not the yat it was. Although he spoke in the easy manner of one making genial conversation, his voice had in it a certain purposeful note. He seemed like a rear rear admiral who was waiting for something. And Ambrose, as if urged by some hypnotic spell, produced half a crown and pressed it into his hand. Then, placing the remains on his head, he tottered across the lobby to join the girl he loved. That she could ever, after seeing him in a hat like that, come to love him in return, seemed to him at first unbelievable. Then Hope began to steal shyly back. After all, it was in her cause that he had suffered this great blow. She would take that into account. Furthermore, girls of Roberta Wickham's fine fiber do not love a man entirely for his hat. The trousers count. (laughs) So do the spats. It was in a spirit almost optimistic that he forced his way through the crowd to the spot where he had left the girl. And as he reached it, the squeaky voice of Old Stinker smote his ear. Nolly, said Old Stinker, what have you done
1: to your act?
0: Another squeaky voice spoke. Aunt Marcia's son Wilfred was regarding him with the offensive interest of a biologist examining some lower organism under the microscope. I say, said Wilfred, I don't know if you know it, but somebody's
1: been sitting on your hat or something. Did you ever see a hat like that, stinker? <laughs> Never in my puffs, replied his friend. Ambrose gritted
0: his teeth. Never mind my hat. Where's Miss Wickham? Oh, she had to go, said old stinker. It was not for a moment that the hideous meaning of the words really penetrated Ambrose's consciousness. Then his jaw fell and he stared aghast.
2: Go.
1: Go? Go where? I don't know where. She, she went. She said she had remembered, just, just remembered remember an appointment, explained Wilford. She said that you were to take us in and she would join us later if she could. She rather thought she wouldn't be able to, but she said she'd leave her ticket at the Bacchus office, just in case. She said she knew we would be all right with you, concluded old stinker. Come on, let's beef in or we'll be missing the educational two-real comic. <laughs>
0: ambrose eyed them wanly all his instincts urged him to smack these two heads as heads should be smacked to curse a good deal to wash his hands of the whole business and stride away but love conquers all reason told him that here were two small boys a good deal ghastier than any small boy he had yet encountered in short mere smack fodder But love, stronger than reason, whispered that they were a sacred trust. Roberta Wickham expected him to take them to the movies, and he must do it. And such was his love that not yet had he begun to feel any resentment at this desertion of hers. No doubt, he told himself, she had had some good reason. In anyone a shade less divine, the act of sneaking off and landing him with these two disease germs might have, <laughs> might have seemed culpable. But what he felt at the moment was that the queen could do no wrong. Well, all right, he said dully, push in. Old Stinker had not yet exhausted the theme of the hat. I say, he observed, that hat looks pretty rummy, you know. Absolutely weird, assented Wilfred. Ambrose regarded them intently for a moment, and his gloved hand twitched a little. But the iron self-control of the whiffins stood him in good stead. Push in, he said in a strained voice. Push in! In the last analysis, however many highly salaried stars its cast may contain, and however superb and luxurious the settings of its orgy scenes, the success of a superfilm's appeal to an audience must always depend on what company each unit of that audience is in when he sees it. Start wrong in the vestibule, and entertainment in the true sense is out of the question. For the picture which the management of the Tivoli was now presenting to its patrons, Hollywood had done all that art and money could effect. Based on Wordsworth's well known poem, We Are Seven, it was entitled Where Passion Lurks. <laughs> and offered such notable favorites of the silver screen as Loretta Bing, G. Cecil Terwillinger, Baby Bella, Oscar the Wonder Poodle, and Professor Pond's Educated Sea Lions. And yet, it left Ambrose cold. If only Bobby had been at his side, how different it all would have been. As it was, the beauty of the story had no power to soothe him. Nor could he get the slightest thrill out of the Babylonian banquet scene, which had cost $500,000. From start to finish, he sat in a dull apathy. Then at last, the ordeal over, he stumbled out into the daylight in the open air. Like G. Cecil Terwilliger, the poignant crisis in the fourth reel, He was as one on whom life has forced its bitter cup and who has drained it to the lees. And it was this moment when a strong man stood face to face with his soul that old stinker, with the rashness of youth, selected for beginning again about the hat.
1: I say, said old stinker, as they came out into the bustling strand, you've no idea what a blister you look in that lid. (laughs) Priceless, agreed Wilfred cordially. All you want is a banjo and you can make a fortune singing comic songs outside the pubs.
0: <laughs> On his first introduction to these little fellows, it had seemed to Ambrose that they had touched the lowest possible level to which humanity can descend. It now became apparent that there were hitherto unimagined depths which it was in their power to plumb. There is a point beyond which even a whiff in self-control fails to function. The next moment, above the roar of London's traffic, there sounded the crisp note of a well-smacked head. (laughs) It was Wilfred who, being nearest, had received the treatment. And it was at Wilfred that an elderly lady, pausing, pointed with indignant horror in every waggle of her fingertip.
1: Why did you strike that little boy?
0: (laughs) Demanded the elderly lady. Ambrose made no answer. He was in no mood for conundrums. (laughs) besides to reply fully to the question he would have been obliged to trace the whole history of his love to dilate on the agony it had caused him to discover that his goddess had feet of clay to explain how little by little through the recent entertainment there had grown a fever in his blood caused by this boy sucking peppermints shuffling his feet giggling and reading out the subtitles lastly he would have had to discuss at length the matter of the hat. Unequal to these things, he merely glowered. And such was the caliber of his scowl that the other supposed that here was an authentic, abysmal brute.
1: I've a good mind to call a policeman,
0: she said. It is a peculiar phenomenon of life in London that the magic word policeman has only to be whispered in any of its thoroughfares to attract a crowd of substantial dimensions. And Ambrose, gazing about him, now discovered that their little group had been augmented by some thirty citizens, each of whom was regarding him in much the same way that he would have regarded the accused in a big murder trial at the Old Bailey. A passionate desire to be elsewhere came upon the young man. (laughs) Of all things in this life, he disliked most a scene, and this was plainly working up into a scene of the worst kind. Seizing his sacred trusts by the elbow, he ran them across the street. The crowd continued to stand and stare at the spot where the incident had occurred. (laughs) (laughs) For some little time, safe on the opposite pavement, Ambrose was too busily occupied in reassembling his disintegrated nervous system to give any attention to the world about him. He was recalled to mundane matters by a piercing squeal of ecstasy from his young companions. Ooh, oysters! Golly, oysters! (laughs) And he became aware that they were standing outside a restaurant whose window was deeply paved with these shellfish. On these, the two lads were gloating with bulging eyes. I could do with an oyster, said old stinker. So could
1: I jolly well do with an oyster, said Wilfred. I bet I could eat more oysters than you. I bet you couldn't but I could bet you couldn't I bet you a million pounds I could I bet you a million trillion pounds you couldn't
0: Ambrose had had no intention of presiding over the hideous sporting contest (laughs) (laughs) which they appeared to be planning (laughs) apart from the nauseous idea of devouring oysters at half past four in the afternoon he resented the notion of spending any more of his money on these gargoyles (laughs) But at this juncture, he observed, threading her way nimbly through the traffic, the elderly lady who had made the scene. A number 33 omnibus could quite easily have got her, but through sheer carelessness and overconfidence failed to do so. And now she was on the pavement and heading in their direction. There was not an instant to be lost. Push in, he said hoarsely, push in. A moment later, they were seated at a table. And a waiter who looked like one of the executive staff of the Black Hand (laughs) was hovering beside them with a pencil and pad. Ambrose made one last appeal to his guests' better feelings. You can't really want oysters at this time of day, he said almost pleadingly.
1: I bet you we can, said old stinker. I bet you a billion pounds we can, said Wilfred. Oh, all
0: right, said Ambrose. Oysters. He
1: sank back in his chair
0: and endeavored to avert his eyes from the grim proceedings. (laughs) Eons passed and he was aware that the galloping noises at his side had ceased. All things end in time. (laughs) Even the weariest river winds somewhere safe to the sea. Wilfred and old stinker had stopped eating oysters. Finished, he asked in a cold voice. There was a moment's pause. The boys seemed hesitant. Yes, if there aren't any more, there aren't, said Ambrose. (laughs) He beckoned to the waiter, who was leaning against the wall, dreaming of old, happy murders of his distant youth. (laughs) La Lichon, he said curtly, sir, the bill, oh, the pill, oh, yes, sir. Shrill and jovial laughter greeted the word, "He he said pill, gurgled old stinker, pill echoed Wilfred they punched each other delightedly to signify their appreciation of this excellent comedy. The waiter flushed darkly, muttered something in his native tongue and seemed about to reach for his stiletto. (laughs) (laughs) Ambrose reddened to the eyebrows. Uh. Laughing at waiters was simply one of the things that aren't done, and he felt his position acutely. It was a relief when the black-hander returned with his change. There was only a solitary sixpence on the plate, and Ambrose hastened to dip into his pocket for further coins to supplement this. A handsome tip would, he reasoned, show the waiter that though circumstances had forced these two giggling outcasts upon him, spiritually he had no affiliation with them. It would be a gesture which would put him at once on an altogether different plane the man would understand that, dubious though the company might be in which he had met him, Ambrose Whiffin himself was all right and had a heart of gold. Simpatico, he believed these Italians called it. And then he sat up, tingling as from an electric shock. From pocket to pocket his fingers flew, and each he found only emptiness. The awful truth was clear. An afternoon spent in paying huge taxi fares, Buying seats for motion picture performances, pressing half-crowns into the palms of Czechoslovakian rear admirals, and filling small boys with oysters had left him a financial ruin. That sixpence was all he had to get these two blighted boys back to Eaton Square. Ambrose Whiffin paused at the crossroads. In all his life, he had never left a waiter untipped. He had not supposed it could be done, he had looked upon the tipping of waiters as a natural process, impossible to evade, like breathing or leaving the button button of your waistcoat unfastened. <laughs> Ghosts of bygone whiffins, whiffins who had scattered largesse to the multitude in the Middle Ages, whiffins who in Regency days had flung landlords' purses of gold, seemed to crowd at his elbow, imploring the last of their line not to disgrace the family name. On the other hand, sixpence would just pay for bus fares and remove from him the necessity of walking two miles through the streets of London in a squashed-top hat and in the society of Wilfred and Old Stinker. If it had been Wilfred alone, or even Old Stinker alone, or if that hat did not look so extraordinary like something off the stage of a low-class music hall, Ambrose Wiffin hesitated no longer. Pocketing the sixpence with one swift motion of the hand and breathing heavily through his nose, he sprang to his feet. Come on, he growled. He could have betted on his little friends. They acted just as he had expected they would. No tact, no reticence, not an effort towards handling the situation, just two bright young children of nature (laughs) who said the first thing that came into their heads and who, he hoped, would wake up tomorrow morning with tilmaine poisoning. <clears throat> I say it was Wilfred who gave tongue first of the pair, and his clear voice rang through the restaurant like a bugle. You haven't tipped him! I say, old sticker chiming and extraordinarily bell-like, Dash it all, aren't you going to tip him? (laughs) You haven't tipped the waiter, said Wilfred, making his meaning clearer. (laughs) The waiter, explained Old Stinker, clarifying the situation of its last trace of ambiguity. (laughs) (laughs) You haven't tipped him! (laughs) Come on, moaned Ambrose. Push out, push out. A hundred dead whiffins shrieked a ghostly shriek and covered their faces with their winding sheets. A stunned waiter clutched his napkin to the breast and Ambrose with bowed head shot out of the door like a conscience-stricken rabbit. In that supreme moment, he even forgot that he was wearing a top hat like a concertina. So true is it that the greater emotion swallows up the less. A heaven-sent omnibus stopped before him in a traffic block. He pushed his little charges in, and as they charged in their gay, boyish way to the further end of the vehicle, seated himself next to the door as far away from them as possible. Then, removing the hat, he sat back and closed his eyes. Hitherto, when sitting back with closed eyes, it had always been the custom of Ambrose Whiffin to give himself up to holy thoughts about Bobby. But now they refused to come. "'Plenty of thoughts, but not holy ones. "'It was as though the supply had petered out. "'Too dashed bad of the girl, he meant, "'letting him in for this sort of thing. "'Absolutely too dashed bad of her, "'and mark you, she had intended from the very beginning, mind you, "'to let him in for it. "'Oh, yes, she had. "'All that about suddenly remembering an appointment, "'he meant to say, perfect rot. "'Wouldn't hold water for a second. She had never had the least intention of coming into that belly-moving picture place right from the start. She had planned to lure him into the thing and then ooze off and land him with these septic kids. What he meant was that it was just too dashed bad of her. Yes, he declined to mince his words, too dashed bad. Not playing the game, a bit thick. In short, well, to put it in a nutshell, too dashed bad. (laughs) The omnibus rolled on. Ambrose opened his eyes in order to note progress. He was delighted to observe that they were already nearing Hyde Park Corner. At last he permitted himself to breathe freely. His martyrdom was practically over. Only a little longer now, only a few short minutes, and he would be able to deliver the two pestilences, F.O.B., at their dens in Eaton Square, wash them out of his life forever, return to the comfort and safety of his cozy rooms, And there begin life anew. The thought was heartening, and Ambrose, greatly restored, turned to sketching out in his mind the detail of the drink which his man, under his own personal supervision, should mix for him immediately upon his return. As to this, he was quite clear. Many fellows in his position, practically, you might say, saved at last from worse than death, would make it a stiff whiskey and soda, but Ambrose, though he had no prejudice against whiskey and soda, felt otherwise. It must be a cocktail, the cocktail of a lifetime, a cocktail that would ring down the ages, in which gin blended smoothly with Italian vermouth, and the spot of old brandy nestled like a trusting child against the dash of absinthe. He sat up sharply. He stared. No, his eyes had not deceived him. At the far end of the omnibus, trouble was rearing its ugly head. <laughs> On occasions of great disaster, it is seldom that the spectator perceives instantly every detail of what is to warn. The thing creeps up upon him gradually, impinging itself upon his consciousness in progressive stages. All that the inhabitants of Pompeii, for example, observed in the early stages of that city's doom was probably a mere puff of smoke. <clears throat> Ah, they said, a puff of smoke. (laughs) And let it go at that. So with Ambrose Wiffin in the case of which we are treating. The first thing that attracted Ambrose's attention was the face of a man who had come in at the last stop and seated himself, immediately opposite old stinker. It was an extraordinarily solemn face, spotty in parts, and bathed in a rather remarkable crimson flush. The eyes, which were prominent, wore a fixed, far-away look. Ambrose had noted them as they passed him. They were round, glassy eyes. They were, briefly, the eyes of a man who has uh, lunched. In the casual way in which one examines one's fellow passengers in an omnibus, Ambrose had allowed his gaze to flit from time to time to this person's face. For some minutes its expression had remained unaltered. The man might have been sitting for his photograph, but now into the eyes there was creeping a look almost of animation. The flush had begun to deepen. For some reason or other it was plain. The machinery of the brain was starting to move once more. Ambrose watched him idly. No premonition of doom came to him. He was simply mildly interested, and then, little by little, there crept upon him a faint sensation of uh, discomfort. The man's behavior had now begun to be definitely peculiar. There was only one adjective to describe his manner, and that was the adjective odd. (laughs) Slowly he had heaved himself up into a more rigid posture, and with his hands on his knees was bending slightly forward. His eyes had taken on a still glassier expression, and now with the glassiness was blended horror unmistakable horror. He was staring at some object directly in front of him. It was a white mouse, or rather at present merely the head of a white mouse. This head, protruding from the breast pocket of old stinker's jacket, was moving slowly from side to side. Then, tiring of confinement, the entire mouse left the pocket, climbed down its proprietor's person until it reached its (laughs) knee, and having done a little washing and brushing up, twitched its whiskers and looked across with benevolent pink eyes at the man opposite. The latter drew a sharp breath, swallowed, and moved his lips for a moment. It seemed to Ambrose that he was praying. The glassy-eyed passenger was a man of resource. Possibly this sort of thing had happened to him before, and he knew the procedure. He now closed his eyes, kept them closed for perhaps half a minute, and then opened them again. (coughs) The mouse was still there. It is at moments such as this that the best comes out in a man. You may impair it with a series of injudicious uh, lunches, but you can never wholly destroy the spirit that has made Englishmen what they are. When the hour strikes, the old bulldog strain will show itself. Shakespeare noticed the same thing. His back against the wall, an Englishman, no matter how well he has lunched, will always sell his life dearly. The glassy-eyed man, as he would have been the first to admit, had had just that couple over the eight which makes all the difference, but he was a Briton. Whipping off his hat and uttering a hoarse cry, possibly, though the words could not be distinguished, that old heart-stirring appeal to St. George, which rang out over the fields of Agincourt and Crecy, he leaned forward and smacked at the mouse. The mouse, who had seen it coming, did the only possible thing. It sidestepped, and slipping to the floor, went into retreat there. And instantaneously from every side there arose stricken cries of women in peril. History dealing with the affair will raise its eyebrows at the conductor of the omnibus. He was patently inadequate. He pulled a cord, stopped the vehicle, and advancing into the interior said, EAR! Napoleon might just as well have said, EAR! at the bottle of Waterloo. Forces far beyond the control of mere words had been unchained. Old Stinker was kicking the glassy-eyed passenger's shin. The glassy-eyed man was protesting that he was a gentleman. Three women were endeavouring to get through an exit planned by the omnibus's architect to accommodate but one traveller alone. (laughs) And then a massive, uniformed figure was in their midst. What's this? Ambrose waited no longer. He had had sufficient Edging round the newcomer, he dropped from the omnibus and with swift strides vanished into the darkness. (laughs) The morning of February the 15th came murkily to London in a mantle of fog. It found Ambrose Whiffin breakfasting in bed. On the tray before him was a letter. The handwriting was the handwriting that once he had loved, but now it left him cold. His heart was dead. He regarded the opposite sex as a washout and letters from Bobby Wickham could stir no chord. He had already perused this letter, but now he took it up once more, and his lips curved in a bitter smile, ran his eyes over it again, noting some of its high points. Very disappointed in you, cannot understand how you could have behaved in such an extraordinary way. Ha! did think I could have trusted you to look after and then you go and leave the poor little fellows alone in the middle of London oh ha ha <laughs> Wilfred arrived home in charge of a policeman and mother is furious I don't think I have ever seen her so pre-war Ambrose threw the letter down and picked up the telephone hello hello Algie yes who's that Ambrose whiffin oh what ho what ho what ho What ho! I say said Algie Crofts. "'What became of you yesterday afternoon? "'I kept trying to get you on the phone, and you were out.' "'Sorry,' said Ambrose Whiffin. "'I was taking a couple of kids to the movies.' "'What on earth for?' "'Oh, well, one likes to get the chance "'of giving a little pleasure to people, don't you know? "'One ought not always to be thinking of oneself. "'One ought to try to bring a little sunshine "'into the lives of others.' "'I suppose,' said Algie, skeptically, "'that as a matter of fact, young Bobby Wickham "'was with you, too, and you held her bally hand all the time.' Nothing of the kind, replied Ambrose Whiffin with dignity. Miss Wickham was not among those present. What were you trying to get me on the phone about yesterday? To ask you not to be a chump and stay hanging around London in this beastly weather, Ambrose, old bird, you simply must come tomorrow. Algy, old cork, I was just going to ring you up to say I would. You were? Absolutely. Great work, sound deck. Right-ho, then I'll meet you under the clock at Charing Cross at half past nine. Right-ho, I'll be there. Right-ho, under the clock. Right-ho, the good old clock. Right-ho, said Algie Right-ho, said Ambrose Whiffin. <laughs> The passing of Ambrose. Right ho, said Algie Crofts, then I shall go alone. Right ho, said Ambrose Whiffin. go alone. Right ho, said Algie Crofts, I will. Right ho, said Ambrose Whiffen, do. Right ho, then, said Algery Crofts. Right ho, said Al- Ambrose Whiffen. Right ho, said Algie Crofts. Few things, said Mr. Mulliner, are more painful than an altercation between two boyhood friends. Nevertheless, when these occur, the conscientious narrator must record them. (laughs) It is also no doubt the duty of such a narrator to be impartial. In the present instance, however, it would be impossible to avoid bias. To realize that Algie Crufts was perfectly justified in taking an even stronger tone, one has only to learn the facts. It was the season of the year when there comes upon all right-thinking young men the urge to go off to Monte Carlo. (laughs) And the plan had been that he and Ambrose should catch the 10 o'clock boat train on the morning of the 16th of February. All the arrangements had been made, the tickets bought, the trunks packed, the 100 systems of winning at roulette studied from end to end. And here was Ambrose, on the afternoon of February the 14th, calmly saying that he proposed to remain in London for another fortnight. Algie Crufts eyed him narrowly. Ambrose Wiffen was always a nattily-dressed young man, but today there had crept into his outer crust a sort of sinister effulgence <laughs> which could have but one meaning. It shouted from his white carnation. It shrieked from his... Tra- <laughs> it shrieked from his trouser crease, and Algie read it in a flash. You're messing about after some beastly female, He said. Ambrose Whiffin reddened and brushed his top hat the wrong way. And I know who it is. It's that Wickham girl. Ambrose reddened again and brushed his top hat once more, this time the right way, restoring the status quo. Well, he said, you introduced me to her. I know I did, and if you recollect, I drew you aside immediately afterwards and warned you to watch your step. If you have anything to say against Miss Wickham... I haven't anything to say against her she was one of, she's one of my best pals i've known young bobby wickham since she was a kid in arms and i'm what you might call immune where she's concerned but you can take it from me that every other fellow who comes in contact with bobby finds himself sooner or later up to the adam's apple in some ghastly mess she lets them down with a dull sickening thud look at roland atwater he went to stay at her place, and he had a snake with him. Why? Oh, I don't know. He just happened to have a snake with him. Then <laughs> Bobby put it in a fellow's bed and let everyone think it was Atwater who had done it. He had to leave by the milk train at three in the morning. <laughs> Atwater had no business lugging snakes about him to country houses, said Ambrose primly. One can readily understand how a high-spirited girl would feel tempted. And then there was Dudley Finch she asked him down for the night and forgot to tell her mother he was coming, with the result that he was taken for a society burglar and got shot in the leg by the butler <laughs> as he was leaving to catch the milk train. <laughs> a look such as Sir Galahad might have worn on hearing gossip about Queen Guinevere lent a noble dignity to Ambrose Wiffin's pink young face. I don't care, he said stoutly. She's the sweetest girl on earth. I'm taking her to the dog show on Saturday. (laughs) Eh? What about our Monte Carlo binge? That'll have to be postponed. Not for long. She's up in London staying with an aunt of sorts for another couple of weeks. I could come after that. Do you mean to say you have the immortal crust to expect me to hang about for two weeks waiting for you? I don't see why not. Oh, don't you? Well, I'm jolly well not going to. Right-ho, just as you like. Right-ho, then I shall go on alone. Right-ho, go alone. Right-ho, I will. Right-ho, do. Right-ho, then. Right-ho, said Ambrose Whiffin. Right-ho, said Algie
2: Cruts.
0: (laughs) At almost exactly the moment when this very distressing scene was taking place at the Drones Club in Dover Street, Roberta Wickham, in the drawing room of her Aunt Marcia's house in Eaton Square, was endeavoring to reason with her mother and finding the going a bit heavy. Lady Wickham was notoriously a difficult person to reason with. She was a woman who knew her mind. But mother! Lady Wickham advanced her forceful chin another inch. It's no use arguing, Roberta. But mother, I keep telling you, Jane Falconer has just rung up and wants me to go around and help her choose the cushions for her new flat. And I keep telling you that a promise is a promise. You voluntarily offered after breakfast this morning to take your cousin Wilfred and his little friend Esmond Bates to the moving pictures today, and you cannot disappoint them now. But if Jane's left to herself, she'll choose the most awful things. I cannot help that. She's relying on me. She said so, and I swore I'd go. I cannot help that. I'd forgotten all about Wilfred. I cannot help that. You should not have forgotten. You must ring your friend up and tell her that you are unable to see her this afternoon. I think you ought to be glad of the chance of giving pleasure to these two boys. One ought not always to be thinking of oneself. One ought to try to bring a little sunshine into the lives of others. I will go and tell Wilford you are waiting for him." Left alone, Roberta wandered morosely to the window and stood looking down into the square. From this vantage point, she was able to observe a small boy in an Eton suit, sedulously hopping from the pavement to the bottom step of the house and back again. This was Esmond Bates, next door's son and heir. And the effect the sight of him had on Bobby was to drive her from the window and send her slumping onto the sofa, where for a space she sat gazing before her and disliking life. It may not seem to everybody the summit of human pleasure, to go about London choosing cushions, but Bobby had set her heart on it, and the iron was entering deeply into her soul when the soul, when the door opened and the butler appeared. Mister Whiffin announced the butler, and Ambrose walked in, glowing with that holy reverential emotion, which always surged over him at the sight of Bobby. Usually there was blended with this a certain diffidence unavoidable in one visiting the shrine of a goddess. Today the girl seemed so unaffectedly glad to see him that diffidence vanished. He was amazed to note how glad she was to see him. She had bounded from the sofa on his entry and now was looking at him with shining eyes like a shipwrecked mariner who sights a sail.
1: Oh, Ambrose, said Bobby, I'm so glad you've come.
0: Ambrose thrilled from his quiet but effective sock clocks to his stay-combed hair. How wise he felt he had been to spend that long hour perfecting the minutest details of his toilet. As a glance in the mirror on the landing had just assured him, his hat was right, his coat was right, his trousers were right, his shoes were right, his buttonhole was right, and his tie was right. He was 100%, and girls appreciate such things, "'Just thought I'd look in,' he said, "'speaking in the guttural tones "'which agitated vocal cords "'always forced upon him "'when addressing the queen of her species. (laughs) "'And see if you were doing anything this afternoon. "'If,' he added, "'you you, you see what I mean. "'I'm taking my cousin Wilfred "'and a little friend of his to the movies. "'Would you like to come?' "'I say. "'Oh, thanks awfully. May I?' "'Yes, do.' (laughs) I say, thanks awfully,' he "'gazed at her with worshipping admiration. "'But I say, how frightfully kind of you "'to mess up an afternoon "'taking a couple of kids to the movies. "'Awfully kind, I mean, kind.
2: "'I
0: mean, I call it dashed, kind of you.' <laughs> "'Oh, well,' said Bobby modestly, "'I feel I ought to be glad of the chance "'of giving pleasure to these two boys. "'One ought not always to be thinking of oneself.' Why ought to try to bring a little sunshine into the lives of others? You're an angel. Oh, no, no. An absolute angel, insisted Ambrose, quivering fervently. <laughs> Doing a thing like this is, well, oh, absolutely angelic, if you follow me. I wish Algie Crufts had been here to see it. Why, Algy? Because he was saying some very unpleasant things about you this afternoon. Uh, most unpleasant things. What did he say? He said, Ambrose winced, the vile words were choking him. He said, you let people down. (laughs) Did he? Did he, forsooth? I'll have to have a word with young Algernon P. Crufts. He's getting above himself. (laughs) He seems to forget, said Bobby, a dreamy look coming into her beautiful eyes, that we live next to each other in the country and that I know which his room is. (laughs) What young Algy wants is a frog in his bed. (laughs) Two frogs amended Ambrose. Two frogs agreed Bobby. The door opened and there appeared on the on the mat a small boy. He wore an Eton suit, spectacles, and low down over his prominent ears a bowler hat. And Ambrose thought he had seldom seen anything fouler. He would have looked askance at royalty itself, had royalty interrupted a -a tête-à-tête with Miss Wickham. I'm ready," said the boy. (laughs) "This is Aunt Marcia's son," Wilfred said Bobby. Oh, said Ambrose coldly. Like so many young men, Ambrose Whiffin was accustomed to regard small boys with a slightly jaundiced eye. It was his simple creed that they wanted their heads smacked. (laughs) When not having their heads smacked, they should be out of the picture altogether. He stared disparagingly at this specimen. The half-formed resolve to love him for Bobby's sake perished at birth. (laughs) (laughs) Only the thought that Bobby would be of the company enabled him to endure the prospect of being seen in public with this outstanding piece of cheese. (sighs) (laughs) Let's go, said the boy. All right, said Bobby, I'm ready. (laughs) We'll find old Stinker on the steps, the boy assured her. "'as one promising a diver- deserving person some delightful treat. "'Old Stinker, discovered as predicted, "'seemed to Ambrose just the sort of boy "'who would be a friend of Bobby's cousin, Wilfrid. "'He was goggle-eyed and freckled "'and also, as it was speedily to appear, "'an officious little devil "'who needed six of the best with a fives bat. <laughs> "'The cab's waiting,' said Old Stinker. "'How clever of you to have found a cab, Esmond,' "'said Bobby indulgently.' I didn't find it. It's his cabs. I told it to wait. A stifled exclamation escaped Ambrose. (laughs) And he shot a fevered glance at the taxi's clock. (laughs) The sight of the figures on it caused him a sharp pang. (laughs) Not six were the fives bat, he felt. Ten. End of the juiciest. (laughs) Splendid, said Bobby. Hop in. Tell him to drive to the Tivoli. Ambrose suppressed the words he had been about to utter and, climbing into the cab, settled himself down and devoted his attention to trying to avoid the feet of Bobby's cousin, Wilfrid, who sat opposite him. The boy seemed as liberally equipped with these as a centipede. <laughs> and there was scarcely a moment when his boots were not rubbing the polish off Ambrose's glittering shoes with something of the emotions of the 10,000 Greeks on beholding the sea, (laughs) that at long last he sighted the familiar architecture of the strand. (laughs) Soon he would be sitting next to Bobby in a dimly lighted auditorium, and a man with that in prospect could afford to rough it a bit on the journey. He alighted from the cab and plunged into the queue before the box office. Wedged in among the crowd of pleasure-seekers, Ambrose, though physically uncomfortable, felt somehow a sort of spiritual refreshment. There is nothing a young man in love finds more delightful than the doing of some nightly service for the loved one. And though to describe as a nightly service the act of standing in a queue and buying tickets for a motion picture entertainment may seem to be straining the facts a little. To one in Ambrose's condition, a service is a service. He would have preferred to be called upon to save Bobby's life, But this not being at the moment feasible, it was something to be jostling in a queue for her sake. Nor was the action so free from peril as might appear at first sight. Sheer black disaster was lying in wait for Ambrose Whiffin. He had just forced his way to the pay box and was turning to leave after buying the tickets when the thing happened. From somewhere behind him, an arm shot out. There was an instant sickening suspense and then the top hat, which he loved nearly as much as life itself, was rolling across the lobby with a stout man in the uniform of a Czechoslovakian rear admiral in pursuit. (laughs) In the sharp agony of this happening, it had seemed to Ambrose that he had experienced the worst moment of his career. Then he discovered that it was in reality merely the worst but one. The sorrow's crown of sorrow was achieved an instant later When the admiral returned, bearing in his hand a battered something, which, for a space, he was unable to recognize, the admiral was sympathetic. There was a bluff, sailorly sympathy in his voice as he spoke. "'Here you are, sir,' he said. "'Here's your rat. "'A little the worse for wear this rat is, I'm afraid, sir. "'A gentleman happened to step on it. "'You can't step on a mat,' he said, sententiously, (laughs) not without hurting it. (laughs) "'That tat is not the yat it was.' although he spoke in the easy manner of one making genial conversation his voice had in it a certain purposeful note he seemed like a rear admirable rear admiral who was waiting for something and ambrose as if urged by some hypnotic spell produced half a crown and pressed it into his hand then placing the remains on his head he tottered across the lobby to join the girl he loved That she could ever, after seeing him in a hat like that, come to love him in return, seemed to him at first unbelievable. Then Hope began to steal shyly back. After all, it was in her cause that he had suffered this great blow. She would take that into account. Furthermore, girls of Roberta Wickham's fine fiber do not love a man entirely for his hat. The trousers count. (laughs) So do the spats. It was in a spirit almost optimistic that he forced his way through the crowd to the spot where he had left the girl. And as he reached it, the squeaky voice of Old Stinker smote his ear. Nolly, said Old Stinker, what have you done to your act? Another squeaky voice spoke. Aunt Marcia's son Wilfred was regarding him with the offensive interest of a biologist examining some lower organism under the microscope.
1: I say, said Wilfred, I don't know if you know it, but somebody's been sitting on your hat or something. Did you ever see a hat like that, stinker? <laughs> Never in my puffs, replied his friend.
0: Ambrose gritted his teeth. Never mind my hat. Where's Miss Wickham? Oh, she had to go, said old stinker. It was not for a moment that the hideous meaning of the words really penetrated Ambrose's consciousness. Then his
1: jaw fell and he stared aghast. Go. Go? Go where? I don't know where. She, she went. She said she'd remember, just, just remembered, remember an appointment, explained Wilford. She said that you were to take us in and she would join us later if she could. She rather thought she wouldn't be able to, but she said she'd leave her ticket at the Bacchus office, just in case. She said she knew we would be all right with you, concluded old stinker. Come on, let's beef in or we'll be missing the educational two-reel comic. <laughs> Ambrose eyed them
0: wanly. All his instincts urged him to smack these two heads as heads should be smacked, to curse a good deal, to wash his hands of the whole business and stride away, but love conquers all. Reason told him that here were two small boys, a good deal ghastier than any small boy he had yet encountered, in short, mere smack fodder, But love, stronger than reason, whispered that they were a sacred trust. Roberta Wickham expected him to take them to the movies, and he must do it. And such was his love that not yet had he begun to feel any resentment at this desertion of hers. No doubt, he told himself, she had had some good reason. In anyone a shade less divine, the act of sneaking off and landing him with these two disease germs might have, might have seemed culpable. But what he felt at the moment was that the queen could do no wrong. Well, all right, he said dully, push in. Old Stinker had not yet exhausted the theme of the hat.
1: I say, he observed, that hat looks pretty rummy, you know. Absolutely weird, assented at Wilfred.
0: Ambrose regarded them intently for a moment, and his gloved hand twitched a little. But the iron self-control of the whiffins stood him in good stead. Push in, he said in a strained voice. Push in! In the last analysis, however many highly salaried stars its cast may contain, and however superb and luxurious the settings of its orgy scenes, the success of a superfilm's appeal to an audience must always depend on what company each unit of that audience is in when he sees it. Start wrong in the vestibule, and entertainment in the true sense is out of the question. For the picture which the management of the Tivoli was now presenting to its patrons, Hollywood had done all that art and money could effect. Based on Wordsworth's well-known poem, We Are Seven, it was entitled, Where Passion
2: Lurks. (laughs) (laughs) and offered
0: such notable favorites of the silver screen as Loretta Bing, G. Cecil Terwillinger Baby Bella, Oscar the Wonder Poodle and Professor Pond's Educated Sea Lions and yet it left Ambrose cold if only Bobby had been at his side how different it all would have been As it was, the beauty of the story had no power to soothe him. Nor could he get the slightest thrill out of the Babylonian banquet scene, which had cost $500,000. From start to finish, he sat in a dull apathy. Then, at last, the ordeal over, he stumbled out into the daylight and the open air. Like G. Cecil Terwilliger, the poignant crisis in the fourth reel, he was as one on whom life has forced its bitter cup and who has drained it to the lees. And it was this moment when a strong man stood face to face with his soul that old Stinker, with the rashness of youth, selected for beginning again about the hat. (laughs) I say, said old Stinker, as they came out into the bustling
1: strand, you've no idea what a blister you look in that lid! Priceless, agreed Wilfred cordially. <laughs> All you want is a banjo and you could make a fortune singing comic songs outside the pubs. <laughs> On his first introduction
0: to these little fellows, it had seemed to Ambrose that they had touched the lowest possible level to which humanity can descend. It now became apparent that there were hitherto unimagined depths which it was in their power to plumb. There is a point beyond which even a whiff in self-control fails to function.
2: The next moment, above the roar of London's traffic, there sounded the crisp note of...